If you have a Bible or electronic device, as mentioned, I realize some of you have more high-tech stuff. Um, We are in John chapter 2, working our way through John's Gospel. And uh, there's an outline in your bulletin you can track with the message. There are printed messages uh, at both exits. You can grab one either now or later. And the printed messages are on the church website as well as the audio messages. And uh, appreciate your prayers for those to be effective. I've had several emails and things this week from people who get the messages and uh, are benefiting by them. And so please pray God will continue to use those. Um, As I mentioned last time, I was tempted to do verses 13 to 25 in one shot or 12 to 25. And then I had to break it down to verse 17 last week. So this morning we'll do 18 to 22 and then, Lord willing, next week 23 to 25. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Jesus, if you missed last week, Jesus just cleansed the temple at the outset of his ministry. I believe there were two cleansings, one at the start, one at the end. And then here is the response. Verse 18, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had spoken. You've probably had the experience, as I have, of talking to a skeptic about the Lord, trying to share the Gospel with him, only to have him say, well, if I just saw a miracle, I'd believe. That is never true. Because the problem with skeptics is not a lack of evidence. The problem with skeptics is they love their sin. And as Paul puts it in Romans 1, a skeptic suppresses the truth in unrighteousness because they love their unrighteousness. Years ago, I read a story about there was a college course that was, I can't imagine why this would be so, It was the most popular course on campus, and it was a freshman chemistry class, okay? I had chemistry, and it wasn't my most popular course. But anyway, uh, I guess the professor was really a master teacher, a man named Dr. Lee. And every year before Thanksgiving, he would give a famous lecture in which he uh, attacked prayer. And he would conclude the lecture each year with this challenge. Is there anybody here who still believes in prayer? And then he would add, before you answer, let me tell you what I'm going to do and what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to turn around and take a glass flask and hold it out at arm's length. And then if you believe that God answers prayer, I will have you stand and pray that when I drop the flask, it will not break. But he said, I want you to know that your prayers and the prayers of your parents and the prayers of your Sunday school teachers and even the prayers of your pastors cannot prevent this flask from breaking. 
And if you wish to have any of them here, then we'll hold off on this experiment until after the Thanksgiving recess. Well, no one had ever stood up to Dr. Lee's challenge until a Christian freshman learned about it. And uh, he just sensed that God had given him the conviction to stand up to Dr. Lee. And so when the skeptical professor threw out the challenge, the young man stood up. Well, said the professor, this is most interesting. Now we will um, be most reverent while this young man prays. And then turning to the young man, he said, now you may pray. Well, the young man stood up. He lifted up his face toward heaven and prayed very simply, God, I know that you hear me. I want you to please honor the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and honor me, your servant. Don't let the flask break. Well, Dr. Lee stretched out his arm as far as he could. He released the flask. It fell in an arc and came down and hit the toe of his foot and rolled off and did not break. Well, the story, the book I read that story in, uh, A Journey to Victorious Praying, did not report the professor's response, but I would almost bet money that he did not fall to his knees, repent of his sins, and say, I was wrong, Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and become a Christian. Because skeptics who demand a miracle, uh, they don't need a miracle to come to faith. What they need is to repent of their sin. Now, our text reports the aftermath of Jesus' confronting the sin of those who were selling animals and changing money in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. And they came to Jesus and demanded a sign. And remember, sign is John's special word for a miracle. It points to something beyond the thing itself. It tells us something about Jesus, each miracle that John reports. And in effect, they are challenging Jesus, saying, just who in the world do you think you are to do what you just did in cleansing the temple? Do you think you own this place? And, of course, John wants us to see, yes, as a matter of fact, Jesus does own that place. Jesus is Lord of the temple. It belongs to him, and he has every right to cleanse it from corruption. Now, our text shows us, first of all, how not to come to Jesus, and then, secondly, how to come to Jesus. And it's saying to us, basically, when Jesus confronts your sin... Don't challenge him, as the Jews did here, but rather believe in him as the crucified and risen Savior and Lord, as the Scriptures testify, and that's what the disciples did here in verse 22. The first thing we need to understand, however, is that Jesus is in the business of confronting all sin that undermines the true worship of God. As you know, God created us all to glorify Him, to praise His name, to worship Him forever. And Paul sums up, really, all sin by saying that we fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus confronted these uh, sellers and money changers in the temple because 
they had perverted God's purpose for the temple, which was that it would be a place of worship and a place of prayer for all the nations. And as I mentioned last time, they had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles, which was the only place that the Gentiles had to worship. And so they were disrupting the very purpose for which God wanted that temple to be used. Jesus was especially incensed, I think, at religious sin because these religious people professed to know know God. They professed to obey God and worship Him, but as it says elsewhere, Jesus confronts them and said, your hearts are far from Him. They did the outward motions, but they weren't worshiping God from the heart. And as I said last time, no doubt they would have rationalized their sin of uh, selling and doing business in the temple by saying, well, you know, it's, it's for a good cause and it's helping these worshipers, providing a service for them and so on. But they were really using their religion as a cloak to cover their greed. And so Jesus zealously, says in verse 17, uh, zeal is what drove him to drive them out of his father's house, out of the temple. Now, if you want to stir up someone's zeal, offend what he loves. If you want to get me zealous, offend my wife, because I love my wife and I'm going to defend my wife. Well, Jesus loved the Father, and He loved the Father's house, and when He saw it being desecrated and used for the wrong purpose, it stirred up His zeal, and He drives these guys out of the temple. Now, in doing that, He offended what they loved. Namely, they loved their money. And they loved their position of power and their respectful greetings in the marketplace. And Jesus made them all look silly and drove them out of there. And so now they challenge Jesus' authority. You know, what right in effect do you have to do what you did? Uh, But that is the wrong way to come to Jesus when he confronts your sin. Now, before we go on and look at... um, their challenge to Jesus. Let me just ask you this question. Has Jesus confronted your sin? That's an important question. Because if he hasn't, you really don't know him. Uh, You know, you cannot walk with Jesus very many steps. Jesus, who is perfectly holy, without him confronting your sin. Now, He'll do it gently if you're burdened by the weight of your sin and you want to be free from it. We see that all through the Gospels. With those who are broken, He is gentle. But with those who are self-righteous and those who are hypocrites, He's not so gentle. Uh, He gets pretty tough. But wherever you're at on the spectrum, what I'm saying is there is no such thing as real contact with the Lord Jesus without, again, conviction of sin. And, of course, He provides the answer to that in His death on the cross for our sin. But when He does confront your sin, first of all, we're going to look at how not to respond. And uh, that is, when Jesus confronts your sin, don't come to Him by challenging Him and asking Him for a sign, as these guys do. Notice verse 18 again. The Jews then said to Him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, Jumping down to verse 23, 
um, John will tell us that during the feast, Jesus was doing all sorts of signs in Jerusalem. John doesn't report them. They didn't need a sign. They didn't need a sign. Three things to note here. First of all, to challenge Jesus when he confronts your sin is really to dodge the main issue at stake. See, the reason they challenge Jesus is he had just upset their nice little corner on the religion market there in Jerusalem that they had. And there is no sign or hint of repentance in their challenge to Jesus. Uh, They didn't come and humbly say, you know, Jesus, you are right. God has really convicted us that we were wrong to be selling these animals in the temple precincts and changing money. We'll move our operation outside the temple and thank you for helping us see that. There's none of that. They knew Jesus was right, but they didn't like the fact that he had confronted them. And so they dodge his confrontation by challenging him back. And people do that. If you ever have to confront someone in their sin, be ready. They'll counter it by saying, well, yeah, but look at you. And they'll come right back at you with something. That's not the point. See, the point is their sin, but they don't want to deal with it. And so when skeptics say, well, just show me a miracle and I'll believe, you can count on it. They are dodging their sin. They don't want to face their sin. And they don't need more evidence to believe because they aren't seeking to believe. It's not like they're saying, I really want to believe. I really do. You know, uh, if, if they're repentant of their sin and want to believe, God will give them all the evidence they need. But that's not the issue. They just want to dodge their sin. I read about a campus worker who talked with a student, and the student claimed the Bible was full of myths. He admitted, though, he had never read it. And so uh, that's often the case, by the way. And, and so the campus worker challenged him and said, well, read the prophet Isaiah who prophesied about Christ and then read the Gospel of Matthew that tells how those prophecies came true. Well, he figured he would never see that student again. But the next day, to his surprise, the student came up and said, uh, I read Isaiah and Matthew last night. And he said, it was interesting literature and I think it speaks the truth. And the campus worker said, wow, that's great. He said, are you ready to trust in Christ as your uh, Savior for eternal life? No way, said the student. He said, I have a very active sex life, and I know that Christ would want to change that, and I don't want anyone messing with that. Well, he was honest, but, of course, condemned by what he said. But to, to... challenge Jesus is really to dodge the main issue. We all have to confront our sin. Second thing to note is that to challenge Jesus is to assume superiority over him. As I said, Jesus was Lord over the temple. It was his father's house. Jesus is the heir of all things, we read in Hebrews 1-2. So Jesus owned the temple, and he had a right to cleanse it. Uh, By cleansing the temple and by calling it my father's house, Jesus was really, as I mentioned last week, demonstrating his deity. And John, of course, shows us that all through John's gospel. But Jesus' reply in verse 19 is the statement of one greater than a human because who knows our future? I can't tell you how and when I'm going to die. I'm glad I can't. I wouldn't want to know, but... Jesus knew, 
He knew in advance. And his answer uh, says, I'm going to be killed and raised up the third day. Now, my point is this. You don't come to the omniscient Lord of the temple and challenge him as if you're the Lord of the temple. What right do you have to cleanse the temple and so on? Uh, you don't demand answers from Jesus and imply, I know more than you do. And uh, if you come to Jesus that way, you can just expect that he is not going to answer you. You have to come as a subordinate before Christ. He is the Lord. You're not. Maybe you do have honest questions. Okay. You come submissively. And see, the problem with skeptics They sit in judgment on the Bible as if they know more than the Bible. And they pick all these things out and take shots at the Bible, but they are not submissive to it. It's one thing to come to the Bible and say, Lord, I don't understand this. This seems like a contradiction or there's a real problem here. How do we work through this? Would you please show me if you have a humble spirit? Uh, That's one thing. But if you come challenging, your spirit's wrong. You, know, you who are parents know that. If your child comes to you, and they're in your face, even if you're wrong, you know, you want to say, wait a minute, that's not the way you talk to you, to me. I'm your father. Or, that's your mother. And you talk with respect. Now, what's the problem? And, you know, that establishes authority. God is the authority. We're not. And so, if we have an issue, we have to come as submissive children now Jesus doesn't respond kindly when we come in his face challenging him and that's the third thing to notice here if you challenge Jesus by asking for a miracle he'll give you just enough truth to condemn you but he won't give you enough truth to save you because you aren't seeking salvation that's a scary thought Now, there were at least two other occasions where the Pharisees came and challenged Jesus and said, Give us a sign! And on both occasions, Jesus gave them basically the same answer he gives here. Uh, One of those was in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40, where we read, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Here's his answer. He says to them, An evil An adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then again, four chapters later, Matthew 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus... They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he replies in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Notice how he confronts their sin. He doesn't say, you guys have a legitimate intellectual question. No, he says, you guys are evil and you guys are adulterous from God. And then he adds, no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them. And went away. And it's always a scary thing if Jesus leaves you and goes away. Now, both times, Jesus gives essentially the same as his cryptic answer here. And all those answers are somewhat cryptic. 
And that is, it's a reference to his upcoming death and resurrection. So in verse 19 of our text, Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now they think he's talking about the Jerusalem temple, the big building there in Jerusalem. But John clarifies for the reader in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, rather than humbly admitting that they didn't understand Jesus' answer in verse 19, they challenge him again in verse 20. It took 46 years to build this temple. And and you're going to raise it up in three days? See, that's in his face, basically, saying, who do you think you are? You know, that's ridiculous, is right beneath the surface of that. Now, I might add, some reputable scholars argue on grammatical, linguistic, and historical grounds, and it's far too complicated for me to go into it, but I think they make sense that it should be translated, this temple was built 46 years ago, and um, that would date this event to A.D. 30, which puts Jesus' crucifixion at A.D. 33, which Dr. Honer, my seminary professor in a class on chronology and He later wrote a book on it, argues pretty convincingly the crucifixion was in A.D. 33. But uh, if they are saying it was built 46 years ago, their point is this building has stood firm here for 46 years. You're saying you're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? Come on, give us a break. Um, However you take it, though, it's obvious they're not humbly seeking truth from Jesus. They're arrogantly challenging Jesus and putting themselves above him. And Jesus never threw his pearls before swine. And so he often veiled his answers. Remember in Matthew 13, he's giving parables, and the disciples come and they ask Jesus why he speaks in parables. And here's his answer in Matthew 13:13. 13, 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so Jesus' parables served to reveal truth to those who humbly sought it from him. The disciples later asked him, what was the meaning of that parable of the sower? And he explained it. But at the same time, the parables concealed truth from those who were proud in heart, from those who would not open their eyes. And as I said... He gives such critics enough truth to condemn them in that he could say on Judgment Day, you heard that parable and you didn't seek truth. You arrogantly wrote me off. But it's enough, uh, not enough to open their eyes and save them unless they repent. It's interesting that Jesus' trial, um, and this, by the way, is an argument for why there were two cleansings of the temple, because... This interchange with the Jews only occurs at this first cleansing in John's Gospel. And yet, at Jesus' trial, they brought false witnesses, and they hark back to this. They twist it. And in Matthew 26:61, they say, testifying against Jesus, This man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And then as Jesus hung on the cross, it says in Mark 15:29 and 30, that those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
Now, of course, that's a perversion of what Jesus said. He doesn't say here, I am going to destroy this temple. He says, destroy this temple. And the implication is he's making a future statement of future fact. He's saying, you will destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Now, what did he mean? Well, there's a double meaning here. On one level, as John points out, he means you will destroy this temple of my body and I will raise it up three days later. And by the way, the scriptures show that all three persons of the Trinity had a part in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, But just as they did, by the way, in creation. But on another level, what Jesus is saying is your unbelief and your rejection of me, the Messiah, is going to result in the destruction of this temple building. And I'll, I'll raise it up in three days. And what he, <clears throat> excuse me, what he means there is, um, in AD 70, as you know, Titus and his Roman army came into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple as a judgment on the Jews for crucifying Jesus. How did Jesus raise it up in three days? That's a reference again to his resurrection body because he is our new temple. He is our dwelling place. He is the one in whom we now meet. And so our worship does not center in a building. Thank God we have a nice building, but this building could fall down tomorrow and we are the church. And we could meet in homes, we could meet in a gymnasium, we could meet at a theater, many, many places. But we are the church, and we are being built into a holy temple in the Lord, and the Lord himself, of course, is the temple. And what uh, Jesus is saying is, the sign that these things are true, and that I am the truth, is my bodily resurrection from the dead on the third day. And the Apostle Paul, as you know, stakes the entire Christian faith on that one historic event. If Jesus is not risen, you're wasting your time to be a Christian. Uh, But if he is risen, of course, then he is true. So, first we've seen then that Jesus is in the business of confronting all sin that undermines this true worship of God. And then we've seen the wrong way when he confronts your sin. Don't come to him by challenging him, as the Jews do here, asking for a sign, but let's look now finally at the right way, and that is come to Jesus by believing in him as the crucified and risen Lord as the scriptures themselves uh, testify. Now the Jewish skeptics here in this story and the disciples are both looking at the same evidence, they're looking at the same person, They're hearing the same teaching from the lips of Jesus, and yet they have radically different responses. The skeptics refuse to repent of their sins. They eventually crucify the Lord of glory. The disciples' response, however, is quite different, and we read of that in verse 22. So, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And that's the response, of course, John wants all of us to have, to believe the Scripture and the Word which Jesus here speaks. Just four things to note briefly here. First, all Scripture centers in the substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. John doesn't say which Scripture, in verse 22, the disciples believed 
after Jesus' resurrection. He may have had in mind Psalm 16 that uh, talked of Jesus' resurrection. Psalm 22 predicts Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. Uh, Isaiah 53, same thing. But he doesn't say, and I think he doesn't say for a reason. I think John wants us to see all Scripture testifies to Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. Um, You remember after the resurrection, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he meets those two men who are going home. They're dejected after witnessing the crucifixion. And then we read as he talks to them in Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then later in that same chapter, Jesus says to the disciples, this is Luke 24, 44, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and those are the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then Luke adds in the next verse, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. How I wish I could have been there. That would have been worth more than all the seminary classes in the world. Uh, And it was cheaper too. And uh, no tuition. Jesus opens their minds and he shares with them everything written about him in all of the Scriptures. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that would have been. But here's the point. To believe in Jesus, look for him from Genesis to Revelation. He is all through the Bible. All the Old Testament points forward to him. All of the New Testament looks back to him. And it all centers on his death and resurrection, of course. And uh, as you you read the Old Testament, just pray that the Lord will open Christ to your soul and feed you on him. He's there, sometimes hidden, but he's in there. And if you missed it, I preached on on Romans 15.4, why you need the Old Testament. And you might get that message off the website and listen to it or read it. The second thing to note here is that Scripture is our only source for truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, And here what I'm doing is warning you, don't conjure up a Jesus of your own liking. That happens very often, even in Christian circles. People will pick their favorite verses about Jesus. Oh, he was so loving and kind. Oh, yes, this is my Jesus. And they somehow skip over the verses that show him to be holy and that he's going to judge the wicked. And uh, you have to take the balance of all of Scripture. It says in in Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth. So don't skip the hard parts. Let me give you one example. I think every one of us loves Matthew 11.28. It's such a wonderful promise. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You just read that verse and go, boy, that's great. That is so good. Okay. But some don't like what comes just before it. They quickly read over that if they're reading through the Gospel of Matthew and move on to their favorite verse and kind of ignore the previous. Right before that, he pronounces judgment and woe 
on these unrepentant cities that have not believed in him in spite of all the miracles he's done. And then he thanks the Father because he hid the spiritual truth from those who were wise and intelligent, and he revealed it to babes. And then, just the verse very right before uh, Matthew 11:28 is Matthew 11:27, of course. And there he emphasizes his sovereignty in salvation. He says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now that's a statement of deity again. No man could say that. And then he adds this, No one knows the, fa- the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He puts salvation squarely there on his sovereign choice, not on ours. And there are a lot of people that don't like that. A lot of Christians, oh, well, I can't believe that. It's part of the Bible. We have to submit to it. It's part of God's truth. And it's much, as much for your soul and your strength as the next verse that we all love. So what I'm saying is, don't just pick and choose or you end up with a skewed view of Jesus and that's what the cults all do. You have to read the whole of God's revelation. I believe the whole Bible tells us who Jesus really is for our good. And then thirdly, and just touch on this quickly, but Scripture shows that by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection, He is the new temple. I already mentioned this. We need to understand, though, because people still, Christians still, have this idea of a sacred place. Don't run in the sanctuary. That's the house of God. No, it's not. This is a building. This is a building we happen to meet in. We are the sanctuary of God. We are the temple of God. God dwells in us. And we are to be holy. You see, not a place. And we meet with God in Jesus. We dwell in Him. And so, just want to say that in passing. Get in your mind, there are no sacred cathedrals or buildings since the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. We, the people of God, are the dwelling place of God. And then one last thing. As God opens our eyes through the Scriptures to see who Jesus really is, we should believe more and more in Him. And as I have said often, believing in Jesus is not a blind leap of faith where you close your eyes against all rationality and evidence. You take this leap and you hope that somehow He's going to hold you up. That is not the biblical idea of faith. Faith is as good as its object. And the Bible reveals the object of our faith as being trustworthy, namely the person of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, faith is a step because what you're doing when you believe, you are trusting the evidence and the eyewitness testimony of these men who were with Jesus. But you're not just trusting that. You're also trusting the evidence, as I said, of the entire Old Testament that points ahead to Jesus. And so there's where faith comes in. You have to say, I I think these men had it right. I don't think they're making a yarn or a story. I think they're, they're telling us the truth. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 18, John said, We beheld His glory. 
Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or as Peter testifies in 2 Peter 1, 16, he, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And so, yes, we must believe the witness of Peter and John and the other apostles of Paul and what he experienced in his conversion. And all of those men backed up their witness with their lives. They suffered martyrs' deaths, except for John, but he suffered greatly. Um, but then we have the testimony of Scripture, of all of Scripture to Christ. And, and then as we've seen, uh, faith in Christ is not something you did once years ago. and Well, that's a done deal. But rather, as God, through the Scriptures, opens your eyes more and more and more, as I hope He's doing through the Gospel of John, to see who Jesus is, your faith grows more and more and more. Uh, we've seen that. Remember in John 1.50, when uh, the disciples first met Jesus, they believed in Him and they began to follow Him. Then we saw at the end of the uh, water-turned-into-wine miracle that the disciples saw His glory and they believed in Him. You say, well, they already believed in Him. Yes, they believe in Him again because they saw more of Him. And even here, we have the same thing. After the resurrection, they reflect back on Jesus' words and it says they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And notice, by the way, how John puts Jesus' words on a par with Scripture. What Jesus said, God said. Jesus spoke to us the very words of God. But the point is just this. The more through Scripture we see who Jesus really is, the more we will believe in Him and uh, our faith will grow. One other thought there from verse 22, and this is encouraging. It takes time sometimes to see spiritual truth for our faith to grow. The disciples didn't get this until after the resurrection. Here they are with Jesus, and as you know, many a time, Jesus predicted His death and resurrection, and whoop, it went right by Him. They didn't get it. Thank God He is patient with us when we don't get it the first time. And, and here, after the resurrection, they thought back on this. They remembered that he said this. And then it all clicked and they went, ah, that's what he was talking about. And what I'm saying is, if you don't get something in Scripture, don't give up and say, oh man, this is a contradiction. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Seek God for it. Ask and seek and knock. And eventually the door shall be open to you. So just keep seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord. saying, God, this is in your word. I don't understand it. Help me out. I read a story about a godly old woman. She was poor. She lived in a rundown house. And uh, yet, in spite of that, she was a woman who was always praising the Lord and giving thanks to Him. And as the Lord would have it, she lived next door to an old man who was an atheist. And the atheist was always trying to convince her that there's no God. Well, one day, he walked by the house. He looked over and uh, the window was open, and he could see her inside on her knees, and she was praying. And so he crouched down, snuck up by the window, and put his ear up there to hear what she was praying. She was praying out loud, and she said, Lord, you've always given me what I've needed, 
And uh, now you know that I don't have any money and I'm out of groceries and I won't get another check for a week. Somehow, Lord, could you get me some groceries? Well, that was all this old atheist needed. He ran down to the store and he, he bought several bags of groceries and he put them on the doorstep and he rang the bell and ran and hid in the bushes and the woman came to the door and she opened the door and she saw the groceries and she threw her hands over her head and started saying, Praise the Lord! Thank you, Jesus! You gave me groceries! And at that point, the atheist jumped out of the uh, hiding and uh, he said to her, I've got you now. He said, I've told you all along that there's no God. God didn't give you those groceries. I did. And the woman said, oh no. She said, Jesus gave me these groceries. He just made you pay for them. (laughs) And you know, there's more than one way to look at things, isn't there? There's more than one way to look at this incident that Jesus cleansed the temple. The Jews, they looked at it and they challenged Jesus and they scoffed and they came under judgment. The disciples looked at it and they said, you know, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection and that's true. And they believed it. And that's what John wants you and me to do, to believe in Jesus. Dear Father, we come before you. Give us eyes to see that all you've written is true and that every mouth will be stopped and those who challenge you with lies will be confounded. I pray, Lord, if any are here who have never humbled themselves before you when you've confronted their sin, that they would do so and that they would believe in the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, suffered on the cross for all our sin, risen bodily and coming back again in power and glory. Pray, Lord, if any of your saints are struggling with doubt or with issues, with unanswered prayer, that, Lord, you would strengthen their faith, help them to persevere, help them to search your scriptures to know more of Jesus and who he is that all of us would grow in faith as we study this wonderful gospel of John that you've entrusted to us, that we would know Jesus better and trust him more through it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.